What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Hello. Welcome back to the Celtics Lab podcast. Today's a very special episode. First, we're going to do the news. We're going to talk about an interview Brad Stevens gave to our friend Brian Robb over at Nest Live. And then in the lab portion of the programming, Justin is messed down with Jason Terry to discuss his post-playing career, his time at the Celtics, and he's going to give a little, little advice to some current NBA players. So definitely stick around for that. And to make sure you never miss an edition of the Celtics Lab podcast, Go ahead and like and subscribe if you have not. Justin, how are you? Not too shabby. So yeah, I can't complain. I didn't talk to Jason Terrier this week, so my week has been slightly less eventful than you, but um, yeah, I'm doing okay. So let's let's do the news. Let's talk about that interview, and then we'll get into your convo with the Jet. How's that? Um, yeah. The last time we talked was a few days ago with... Anna Horford, if anyone missed that podcast episode, go listen to it later. And since then, really, the only news news is the Celtics, uh, I love the verb you chose, shellacked the Nets 129-107, and it wasn't even that close, which raises a great question. It's your great question. What evidence do you need to see from the Celtics to say that they are, in fact, a legit contender? So you pose the question, but I'll let you answer it first. Well, there is a lot of pressure from the, the crowd who are saying that the Celtics are not really a title contender because all of these wins have been coming against inferior competition. So give me two quality wins. They don't need to be blowouts, but you know, more than like razor thin margins against a team that has home court advantage. Yeah. Yeah. I am inclined to agree. I've kind of said so tongue in cheek that, the Celtics are just beating up on bad teams or injured teams. And that's not that much to write home about the extent to which they're beating up on bad teams and taking care of business. I think they raised their floor earlier in the season of last year. You couldn't take for granted that they would beat the bad teams. So it's progress, right? Like it's not a bad thing that this is happening, but the extent to which they are contenders. Like I love looking at their defensive stats. Um, some of the post game, accolades that have been coming out game after game are just like they're breaking incredible records but yeah like the Nets team that they beat last night it's like a college team yeah right exactly so I looked back they don't really have any signature wins everyone is doing that selective data thing where they say since Christmas or since January 1st myself included 
And in that time, Celtics, they beat the Sixers the other day. That was nice, but they were not a complete team. Um, they had a nice win against Denver, not a complete team. Nice win against Atlanta, a, a team that is lost, I guess. So good wins, but not, not anything to write home about, I don't think. And you point out in our notes that maybe that will change. So there's 21 games left on the schedule as of this recording. That gives the Celtics the 11th hardest remaining schedule. So for anyone playing the home game, they had one of the hardest opening schedules, a very easy uh, middle of the, the schedule. And now the tail end is on the harder side. So they have games against Golden State, two against Memphis. At least one is in Boston. The other West Coast team, one's in Boston coming up. Um, Chicago, Miami, Utah, and Milwaukee. So how many of those games do you need the Celtics to win? You said two. Win or look like they could win for you to feel like they're real contenders? They need to win at least two of those games. Uh, if they can win, I don't know, we'll say one against Utah, one against Miami or Chicago. And then I expect them to win one of the Memphis games just because Memphis is pretty good. But I think that I think they match up pretty well. So I think out of all of those two wins would have me entertaining. Three would have me fairly convinced. Um, I'm not sure that more than four is possible. Yeah, but the, so out of I, those guys, I, of those out of those teams. Sure. But like if there were actual contenders, shouldn't shouldn't four be possible? Um, like Golden State Warriors. They, yeah, that that's a team that's going to give them some some trouble. The the Jazz, I think, are are having their own problems. The Bucks, I don't expect them to beat the Bucks. They're going to be trying to ramp up and really start making some inroads, uh, improving their seating and getting ready for the postseason. So I don't expect them to win that one. Chicago has been a very hard team for Boston this season, and like I said, Memphis, I expect them to win at least one of them. So I mean, of those teams, like I'm not talking about the twenty twenty one. 21, I think, yeah, 21 uh, games left in, in the season. More so than those particular teams. Those are tough teams to beat. And frankly speaking, I am yet to be convinced. I do think that they are a much better team, as you said, but they've got a little bit of ways to go for me to actually be convinced that they are part of the top echelon in the league. Right. And so that's the, it's a definitional frame, right? You, I don't think you meant to do this. You picked seven games. You picked a playoff series. They have to be able to win four of those games to be contenders or definitionally they're not contenders, right? If they can't win four out of seven games against a conglomerate of playoff teams, they're not, they're not going to win a title. Home court, which would, you know, assume that we get them at least through the first round. After that, that's where the question started arising in my mind. I don't think this team is going to have any trouble getting out of the first round. Who they draw in the second round, I think is going to have a lot to do with how or whether they progress. Well, that's interesting. I, I don't know. I, Boston is nine games above 500. They're the sixth seed as we speak. It's possible they're going to get the, the Bucks or the Heat in the first round. I don't know that they're guaranteed to get out of the first round. Um, I, still, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't think that they're necessarily going to win four out of those seven games or 15 of the next 21. But I do think that if they fancy themselves contenders, if we think they're contenders, they kind of have to, right? I mean, the regular season, you rest people, people are injured. You don't, I mean, Udoka plays playoff rotation regardless, but it's not a pure analogy, but I don't know. I kind of think that question is going to answer itself. If this team is a contender, they should win four out of seven games or a big chunk of those 21 games next. So I think we agree that we 
don't know that they're going to do that down the stretch. I think we disagree on the semantics, but the, I mean, me, I, I assume too long. that one of the one of the non-real contenders is going to be somewhere in the middle. I don't expect Boston to get higher than five, so I, I kind of think like the 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 middle of the pack matchup is going to be coming for Boston, and I think that. We'll talk about this a little bit more later that some of the real contenders, other than maybe the Brooklyn Nets, uh, are going to move up in the standings just outside of the range. I think that it's realistic for Boston to either rise or fall to. The Celtics are currently plus 900 to win the East. They have the fifth highest odds. Can you guess the four teams ahead of them and perhaps what order uh, those teams' odds are currently situated? I am not a betting man, but... (laughs) If I were, I would have to say that the two teams that did the biggest trade in the East would have to be in the mix for that, the Brooklyn Nets and Philadelphia 76ers. I would also put in, obviously, the reigning champion Milwaukee Bucks. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, this is tough. I guess I'll throw in Chicago. No, no. No, I'll go with Miami Heat. I'll go with the Miami Heat. I will say Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Brooklyn, Miami, Milwaukee. Milwaukee. You got the teams. You didn't get quite the order. The Nets are plus 300 to win the East. The Bucks are plus 310. The 76ers are plus 350, which is reasonably very, very close. Then the Heat plus 550 and our Boston Celtics at plus 900. We thought it might be worth talking about a specific interview Brad Stevens gave to Mass Live's Brian Robb. Uh, a day or two ago at the time of this recording, I think yesterday or something like that. Um, Stevens kept his cards close to his chest, but he doesn't often give interviews like this. So it was more of a tilt of the hand than usual. Let's get into it. First and foremost, he talked about the Tice trade and the dark white trade. Uh, He made it known that the trade came together closer to the deadline, but he kind of hinted that this, that dark white was on the radar for a while. Um, and interestingly enough, that it sounded like adding bridge players was pretty important and getting rid of players that didn't really fit this roster was was critical. Anything about how Steven's position that surprised you? Well, he will do pretty well as a politician. <laughs> he said quite a lot without saying too much. Uh, yep. The impressions I got from the article is that they are looking for these kind of connector players. They may still be looking for them in terms of three and D players who can also maybe move the ball as well. He didn't say that explicitly uh, so much as the three and D aspect, which he was looking for. He kind of hinted that the, the two 10 uh, day guys they brought on uh, are potentially going to be around for longer because of their defensive ability, which surprised me because uh they look okay in what, I, what I've seen in some highlight videos so far, but to me, I, I would have thought that they would be going for players that I would have heard of at least a little bit. Uh, neither of those guys was on my radar when, when they came up, uh, when we were recording the last podcast, actually. And the other thing that really stuck out to me, uh, I don't know if I believe, and I'm pretty sure you don't, and that would be, nope. <laughs> you already know where I'm going. The idea that the Celtics did not have a mandate to get under the luxury tax. Now, I did believe, and I've said this before, that if the right kind of player was available at the deadline, they would have gone over. But that player wasn't available. No one even close to it seemed to be likely to move. So, yeah, I'm not buying it. Yeah, so Brad said, as I think B-Rob asked, Plank, were you told 
that the team needs to get under the luxury tax. And Steven said, no, the ownership group said that that's not an issue. To your point, I believe that like maybe in December they said that, but Wednesday and Thursday before the deadline, I suspect mightily that it was, okay, we need to get under the tax now. And it's interesting that Stevens is willing to carry water, but also like there's no benefit in not fudging the truth a little, or maybe we're wrong. Maybe that maybe that's exactly what happened. But actually, ten million dollars is pretty helpful when you're buying a football club. Yeah, that uh, that does seem that might add up. Uh, another thing that he talked about is that he wants to give this group a chance now that the team perhaps makes more sense. I'm going to read a quote that is very political, um, in that it doesn't really say much, but I thought it was interesting nonetheless. So here's my Brad Stevens impression. I feel like this group, the way they're capable of playing, the way that we've seen us connect defensively, the way we've seen us compete defensively, especially in the last month plus. Obviously, we've got some real talented guys. I think this group has a chance to be really good together. We will be able to measure or see how that all fits. If it fits really well and they play really well, you value continuity even more. If it doesn't work, you have to be ready to assess where you need to make change. I found that he switched between we and they a few times in that quote. Um, maybe it was telling, maybe it wasn't. What was, what's your thoughts on what Stevens is saying and what you believe about this group and how much leash they have? I think that he does believe this, this group can grow into something pretty formidable. They're already a pretty solid looking playoff unit. They play a playoff style of basketball. So it won't surprise me if we don't see any major moves come this offseason unless, again, the right kind of player comes along. And I don't necessarily think, for example, a Bradley Beal would be the guy that they would be going after if he was available. I would not be surprised if they passed on that because of how much they would, A, have to give up. And B, they know what they have works pretty well and tinkering around the edges and adding somebody who really fits into that schema pretty well would be helpful. I don't know that a player like Bradley Beal would fit into that schema at all. And with that in mind, uh, I would not be at all surprised to see more or less the same team take the floor next season. Yeah. Again, the quote doesn't mean anything, which is his prerogative. I'm not like upset that he didn't give this bombshell of an interview in February, but it is an interesting, like, I'm not slamming the door shut. This is preposterous. He, was, he chose his words very carefully when uh, he was asked about 538 having the Celtics at times the number one title contender. Steven said, I don't, I'm not buying it. And when he was he asked, did. yeah, we, we don't have to have a too much, spend too much time on that. But Stevens was quick to say, no, I don't, I'm not buying it. And when he was asked, is this story about splitting up the Jays? Is that problematic? Is it nice that they buried the hatchet or something? He was like, oh, it was a good story. I don't really care he was very careful with his answer about what this team might look like moving forward. So take it with a grain of salt, I suppose, but we don't need to spend too much wind on that because that's, we do that every week. So we have plenty of time to talk about the future of this team. Um, anything else from that interview that you thought was worth a mention? Off the top of my head, I think we covered all the important stuff. Yeah. He, he was asked about the Jays saying we talked and we put it together and he's used the term good story two or three times in a way that made it sound like more like, Oh, that's nice that they made up. Not like the media was manipulating a storyline that didn't exist. And I thought that that was interesting that he 
wasn't wholeheartedly like endorsing the friendship between Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown uh, so much as saying like, it's nice. I hear people talk sometimes. It's nice. Um, but you'll have to go to Mass Live and read the interview between Brian Robb and Brad Stevens because my Brad Stevens impression is pretty good, but Brad Stevens does a killer Brad Stevens. I would, I would go to him for your Brad Stevens impressions. Um, so that's it for this half of the podcast. I am going to hand it over to Justin, who's going to hop into the Celtics lab and talk to Mr. Jason Terry about all sorts of things. Um, I, I won't say anything. You I just have to keep listening to the podcast to find out, but enjoy your conversation with the jet. Enjoy listening to that conversation with the jet. Please like, and subscribe to this podcast if you have not. And I will see you all next week. Bye. So first of all, I want to thank you for doing this interview with us. I'm pretty excited to talk to you. I grew up a Celtics fan. So seeing you on the other end of this call is pretty awesome. Uh, Let's start at the beginning, or at least the basketball beginning. Now, before your pro and college career, you went to high school in Seattle. Uh, that's what I was alluding to off uh, before we started this interview uh, with the questions there. Uh, do you keep in touch with that basketball scene, the Pacific Northwest basketball scene? We've got like lots of Celtics alumni, like IT and Nate Robb and Avery Bradley from up there. Are you really like a part of that? No doubt, See, Seattle's home and. You know, obviously be, being one of the founding fathers, the uh, pioneer, so to speak, of the Seattle Hoops culture. Um, I'm, I'm always in tune to what's going on in the city. And, you know, though I don't get back often, I do still have family in the area. And I mean, the, the bevy of talent that has come out of Washington is a lot in due in part to, you know, the culture we created. You know, when I talk about we like Brandon Roy, Jamal Crawford, who's still actively uh, in the area, still living there, Isaiah Thomas, um, you know, Nate Robinson, the names go on and on um, with the contribution that all those men have had in that community. And we still continue to produce athletes at a high rate. I mean, you look at guys in the NBA now, Zach Levine, uh, who's having a phenomenal season this year with the Bulls, you know, a lot of guys that are still active you know, contributed uh, to the success of that area. Very cool. So you also spent a season with the Boston Celtics. What was your general impression of the time you spent with the team? Loved it. I mean, anytime I go back to the area, the city of Boston, you know, the fans are just so receptive. Once you put on that Celtic uniform, whether it was for one game or one season or 20 seasons, you will forever be remembered um, as a Celtic. And for me, I got a Celtic tattoo logoed on my on my bicep. And, you know, it was one of the out of my 19 year career it was one of the greatest times I had playing ball, you know, not only because I had Hall of Fame teammates and Paul Pierce and Rondo and KG and a Hall of Fame coach in Doc Rivers, but because of the ownership and the organization and the fans. I mean, they truly are uh, one of the greatest fan bases in the world in professional sports. And um, they let you know it. And, and I'll always be a Celtic. Glad that you said that Rondo's a Hall of Fame guy. I, I agree. Uh, now, you signed with the Celtics after winning a title with Dallas. What made you make that decision? Well, for me, it was all, all about trying to stay chasing titles and being competitive. And, you know, just the opportunity to go and play, you know, for an organization like Boston, and play with, you know, teammates like KG and Pierce. You know, those are guys that, you know, we all were in high school around the same time and we all knew of each other, but we never were uh, able to play with each other. Always competed fiercely against each other, but never competed with. Um, so 
you know, the opportunity presented itself. Um, Danny Ains gave me a call and we were, we were able to get a deal done. And unfortunately it didn't last as long as I would have liked it to. Uh, we had some unfortunate injuries that season uh, to Rajon Rondo and, you know, got knocked out in the, the, the first round of playoffs against the New York Knicks. But, you know, even with that said, that one playoff experience, I mean, the arena was electric. Like there wasn't a game that I didn't play in in Boston in that arena that didn't feel like it was a game seven of an NBA finals. And to be able to grace the presence of, you know, some of the greats, uh, um, you know, Tommy Heinsohn no longer, you know, with us was doing play by play, you know, sitting on plane rides and chopping it up with him. And, and then also like cornbread Maxwell spending time with him, tiny arts ball, you know, meeting some of the guys that I idolized and the guys that I looked up to, you know, as a young man, it, it was a dream come true for me. So I'll never forget my time there. Really cool. So speaking of these legends, the 75th anniversary All-Star Game featured several Celtics in the same room together for the first time uh, that I'm aware of any time, uh, anyway. And it seemed at first that there were some people picking at some old scabs. Uh, it's very, you know, shall we say, engaging uh, from a media perspective. I'm not so sure how I feel about it as a fan. I wanted to ask you, just from your perspective, seeing as you kind of stepped into the role that Ray Allen left, that's obviously the feud that I'm alluding to, do you ever feel like the media kind of makes it into more of a thing than it was, or at least made it worse than it could have been? Well, you know what, one thing about our, our media that we have here today in today's world is, you know, when it's going good, it's good. Uh, but then there's also times where they can create a narrative that is a little more than what it seems to be. Now I can honestly tell you, you know, by being teammates with those guys, you know, KG and Pierce and Rondo, did they feel some type of way when, when Ray left and, and how it happened? They certainly did. They feel like they have more to accomplish. And Ray was a big a part of that success. Um, and then for him to go to the rival, I mean, that kind of, you know, hurt. it hurt a little bit, you know. But, I mean, again, it's just sports. It's basketball. All those guys are competitors. And, you know, I think today is still a good friendship, um, but it, there definitely was something to be said about, you know, just the way it happened. That's my general feeling as well. Now, speaking of another one of those teammates, uh, Kevin Garnett, his jersey is going to be retired soon. Could you tell me a little bit about what it was like to play with him specifically and maybe any stories you might have? Well, well, well deserved uh, his jersey being retired. Um, as a Celtic, as it should, as a Timberwolf. I don't know if they've already done that yet, but, um, you know, what he did for that organization while he was there, the impact that he had, um, not only in that locker room, but in the community. Um, you know, as as my time with KG as a teammate, you know, I relished every moment because I knew I was playing with one of the world's 50 greatest players that have ever played the game. You know, watching KG as he was a high school kid getting drafted into the NBA and then as he became player of the year defensive player of the year as he became NBA champion always was a fan of KG because of how he competed because of how he was a team first type of guy and then when you're now not competing against him but you're playing with him you really understand what he's really all about and it's about team you know, he's about the win. I use that as kind of in my coaching or, or cliche in my coaching is about the win. You know, that's what we play for, uh, especially in professional sports. 
You know, you want to be the best at the end of the day. And every time KG stepped on the floor in practice or in games, he wanted to make sure his team was the best. And uh, he did everything within his power. And I enjoyed every minute of it. I mean, and as fierce as he was a competitor, as fierce as he was a, a personality, as passionate as he was about the game, he was that passionate about life and about people. And I just remember our experiences on the bus, you know, on road trips. Hey, even on a helicopter ride one time, man, the team took the bus to Philly. Uh, KG was like, man, I hate bus rides. My legs are too long. Jet, why don't you roll with me? Uh, I met him at a, at a um, helipad in, in Manhattan. Next thing I know, we're up in the air. My first time on the helicopter ride, cruising past the Statue of Liberty, and we land in Philly right before the team got there. So uh, I've just had some crazy experiences, uh, but times that I always relish and cherish uh, because I can tell you today he's still a good friend of mine. Very cool. So as you alluded to earlier, your stay wasn't too long. And that is, of course, because you and Paul and KG were all dealt to the Brooklyn Nets. Now, in, in your mind, could you tell me what it was like to play together there after being together as Celtics before that? Like, what was that experience like transitioning to this new phase of your career? Now, I know we just finished up on KG, but this goes to tell you what, how selfless KG was. Because originally, I was not in that trade. Uh, the Celtics wanted me to stay and, and come back and finish my deal out um, with them and, and continue to build. But KG just said, man, Jets at a point in his career, he he can't go through that. He, he don't deserve that. Like, don't put Courtney Lee in the deal. Put Jet in the deal. Let him come with us to, to Brooklyn so we can chase this championship. And I just thought for, for a guy that has accomplished a lot in his career, he didn't have to do that but he felt so passionate about me and my career and he understood where I was at that he said, man, he was willing to rescind the trade had they not put me in it. And so I, I forever thanked him for that. And, you know, our, our time there in Brooklyn was short, but again, surrounded by hall of famers, being able to play with my friend and um, hall of fame teammate now as a coach, Jason Kidd, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. Um, Brooklyn had a good fan base. Uh, the, the, the intrigue around, having a team now, being that other team in New York, you know, all that type of deal, and still chasing down Miami, uh, who were the champions. I mean, it, it was a good experience for me. I mean, I also got to play with another Hall of Famer to me is Brooke Lopez, Joe Johnson, you know, even Darren Williams. I mean, it, if you want to talk about super teams, just on names alone, when they enter that into the stat sheet, you're looking like, man. That's a super team. And, you know, we just didn't have enough time healthy enough together. Uh, but I enjoyed every minute of that ride as well. Very cool. So both of those teams now are on the, the upswing again, having rebuilt themselves in very different and interconnected ways. Um, I just wanted to see if you could give me a little bit of insight on your opinion on where both teams are going by the end of this season and we'll look one season into the future. So Celtics and Nets, what are your expectations for this season and then next season? Well, I'm still very close to the Celtic organization. Um, having spoken with, you know, Brad Stevens over the last couple of weeks and, you know, over the last couple of years, actually. Um, and, you know, understanding his vision and, and what he wants to see done. And then also my relationship with Jason Tatum, Damon Stoudemire is a good friend of mine who's on their bench. He's one of my mentors. Um, but 
you know, when they have two young stars as they do, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, I mean, how can you not build around something as, as valuable as those two? And I think they've done a great job with kind of managing that roster and trying to fit and shape and mold pieces around that group. And I believe the sky's the limit. I mean, they're playing as well as any team is in the league going into the all-star break. Um, everybody has seemed to bought into their roles and, you know, they're, they're playing well on, on the defensive end of the floor, which was the end of the floor that was kind of, you know, iffy. And so I can see them making a, a deep run in the postseason. I do think they're a key part, and we'll talk about that later away, from, from really solidifying that run. But there's okay. nothing in me that doesn't say Boston can, you know, end up in the Eastern Finals and beyond. I'm talking about the Brooklyn Nets. Now, obviously, you've seen what they did. They've been in flux the entire season. And it's hard to be a championship contending team when you have that much um, inconsistency with your roster, you know, throughout the season. Those guys hadn't been healthy. Obviously, Kyrie's situation, him not being able to play in only 50 percent of the games, that, that just hurts you uh, chemistry wise. So, you know, if healthy and all guys are there and you added Ben Simmons, they're, they're a good playoff team. They have the experience. They have the firepower. I just think it's a chemistry issue and don't know what happens. But, hey, if they're healthy and they're all available, that's a dangerous team and one to look out for. All right. So after your playing career, you pivoted to coaching. You first started out with your alma mater at Arizona, correct? Uh, actually, you know, my coaching career started – uh, four years before I retired, you know, I was okay. given money in Houston as a veteran on that team to be sort of a player coach and bigger staff and Kevin McHale allowed me to be a part of the coaches meetings. And from there, the bug really, it really kicked in um, going to Milwaukee. My last two seasons under Jason Kidd, I had the same opportunity to be a part of game planning, player development, uh, sitting in on coaches meetings, scouting meetings. Um, and, and from there, you know, I knew my passion was for people, I knew my purpose was to coach and, and, and continue to empower this next generation of basketball players to be, you know, the best versions of themselves. And, you know, I went into management my first year out. Uh, I was the assistant general manager with the Texas Legends. But as I was doing that duty, I was a high school basketball coach uh, for a girls team in North Dallas. And we ended up winning a state championship. So then next year, I took the step and became an assistant uh, with the University of Arizona. And, you know, my time there was well served under Sean Miller. Uh, I learned a lot. And I just knew deep down I aspired to be a head coach. And so as I continued to chase that dream, I ran into a good old teammate of mine, Calvin Booth, at the Summer League this past summer. We had a dinner. Next thing you know, he's like, look, we got a spot. You're our coach. And I ended up here in Grand Rapids. So, um, you know, life is about opportunity. And I've been fortunate and blessed enough to have plenty of those opportunities come my way knowing again that, you know, my, my passion is for people and my purpose is to continue to inspire the world, man. And if I can do that from the sidelines uh, and give back to a game that gave so much to me, um, you know, that's what I'm here to do. Very cool. Now, do you have any aspirations to go beyond where you're at and maybe coach an NBA team? Oh, no doubt about it. I think the ultimate goal for me is actually, I know the ultimate goal for me is, is to lead a division one program in the immediate future, um, or sit on the sidelines as a bench assistant or head coach in the NBA. Um, and then that doesn't stop there. I mean, once I get to those two, you know, next sites, I want to win a championship. 
you know, I'm all about winning, man. I always say a play for the win. I, I was able to do so twice in high school, once in college, and then in the NBA. And so now as a coach, I want to also, you know, realize that championship uh, in that capacity. So uh, I'm chasing championships, man. Excellent. So many other Celtics alumni have gone into coaching as they retire as players. Bill Russell, Tommy Heinsohn, Casey Jones, ML Carr, all the way up to Evan Turner. Who do you think might be next? Ray John Rondo, for me, is, is the next coach. And, you know, he and I spent some time probably about four years ago at the top 100 NBA, NBPA basketball camp, um, which they also hold a coaches uh, academy. And this is for young aspiring guys that played in the league or that were active or current players playing in the league that wanted to you know, try their hand at coaching. And uh, he and I were there together as students. And when we left there, we knew, like, we just knew, like, one day we will be on the sideline coaching somebody. And I just ran into Rajon recently. Uh, we were playing in Cleveland, uh, their G League team, and he was, you know, leaving practice. He came over, spoke to our guys after the game. And you could just see it, you know, his, his questions, the type of things he asked just about coaching, how I liked it. And, you know, you could just see the fire light. Now he still has some years left to play, but eventually he's going to be somebody's uh, coach for sure. I think so too. Now, this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about. I'm in a little bit of pain right now, but it's good pain. And you probably know where this is going. Uh, I, I had my first, uh, work out with a personal trainer since the start of the pandemic i didn't give up on keeping myself as fit as i could during the pandemic but it's kind of hard to do it in, with you know your limited home gym and trying to stay like you know dedicated to it and a personal trainer with covid being what it is in the world right now is not something that most people are comfortable with in most environments but you actually have this new thing that you are working with called Flexit, which is like this virtual personal home trainer thing. And like, to be completely honest, they were brutal. They were great. I really, really enjoyed the workout that I got. Uh, my legs less so. Tell me how you got involved in that. Yeah, Flexit, Flexit, my partnership with them has just been tremendous. Um, I did a, a appearance for them at a, at a conference for uh, physical fitness and home gyms and, you know, just sitting down talking to Austin, who was their CEO and meeting the rest of the team. It was just, it was instant chemistry and then understanding their mission, which is to empower consumers uh, to experience fitness in a flexible manner uh, that is in accordance with their lifestyles and goals is something that I was like fortunate and blessed enough to have as an NBA player for 19 years. Like I have my own personal trainer, not only during the season, but in the off season as well. And the regular person just doesn't have that luxury. And so when you talk about fitness and when you talk about Flexit, you know, they're able to connect the cons consumer with the best fitness option, wherever, whenever. Now think about that, how convenient that is. You don't have to go to a gym. You don't have to try to find a, a trainer online. It's right here on the Flexit platform. It's right on your, your app or your phone or your, or your computer. You log on, you hook up a time with a trainer, you know, and you do it in the own comfort of your own home. I think that's, to me, what is, is, is more incredible than anything because a lot of us, you know, stay-at-home moms, work dads, work moms, you know, you just don't have the time um, to be able to map out, okay, I'm doing this specific time on this specific day, and I'm going to get my workout in. But Flex is not like that. 
flexes whenever, wherever, whenever, and on your schedule. So whenever you're ready, you have somebody accessible, readily available for you and cater workout for you. You're not in a group setting where you're working out with five other people that are totally different life goals and lifestyle fitness goals than you have. So you're not intimidated. You're comfortable in your environment. And as you know, you know, we work well, you know, as humans when we're most comfortable. And so for me, that's why I love Flexit, man. And, you know, they've been so great you know, not only to me, but to everyone that I've known that I've had join the platform. Now, the workouts are intense, but it's all to, to your level. You know, whatever level you're comfortable with, you know, that's what they're going to do. And then they're going to push you. See, as a professional athlete, I always needed somebody in my ear to push me towards my goal and to give me that positive reinforcement and let me know there's another rep, there's another set to do. And I think flexit trainers are the best in the world at motivating and pushing you to get that next rep. Enjoy my experience. Little, little tough, but you know it's a little hard to uh, talk yourself out of the interview when you know that somebody's waiting for you. So, <laughs> so before I let you go, um, I want to thank you again for the interview. But I have one more question for you. Sure. If you could give Boston's younger players advice for improving their three-point shot, what would it be? Repetition, repetition, repetition. And if you ask anybody, you can ask Jason Tatum because the word on the street, he still does my same three-point routine um, that I did when I was there with Boston. Got that from one of his assistant coaches who let me know that. So, you know, it's all about repetition, man. The more you do something, um, the better you're going to be at it. And you got to put the work in. Very cool. Thank you very much, man. Really appreciate this. It's a lot of fun. No doubt. Anytime. Talk to you soon. Hi, man. Take care. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.